In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your son, at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, And the head of Damascus is Razan. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. 
In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of, sh- of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This is the word of God. You know, one of the things I love is to understand how the Bible fits together. Do you, do you like to do that, to see how the whole Bible fits together, actually connects, is united as one book? Well, if you're going through Isaiah, then let me just encourage you to try going ahead and reading through some of Second Kings and Second Chronicles as well, because there you'll find a history of the kings that were uh, leading whenever Isaiah was prophesying. And we'll see that this week, um, how important and encouraging that could be. Now, another way to do this, if you're like, man, I would really love to get some background on what's going on here. Uh, I know that Dan Diffie is teaching a Sunday school on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on Chronicles. And so that's a good opportunity for you to go and get some of this background. If you were to do that, I think that you would have a really good head start on understanding the story that we're jumping in today. See, we're right back in our Looking at Jesus series in Isaiah. And as we're jumping into that series, what you'll find is, is that uh, we're all of a sudden going to be exposed to a king named Ahaz. Uh, So far, the first six chapters have been during the reign of Uzziah, a king who reigned for 52 peaceful years and largely did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, We know that Uzziah had a son, Jotham, who served for 16 years, and he was a mighty warrior who also did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then we have Ahaz. Here's what's fascinating. When you're looking at Isaiah, from Isaiah 6, where we talk about Uzziah dying, and Isaiah 7, where all of a sudden we are exposed to King Ahaz, uh, Jotham, King Jotham barely even gets a footnote. So I think that if you really want to understand the context of what's going on with King Ahaz, uh, reading a little bit in Second Chronicles could be helpful. If you were to do that, here's what you would find. You would find a little bit about these kings and what's interesting and what I believe is a trajectory downhill that goes from Uzziah to his grandson Ahaz. Here's an important context to remember about Ahaz. You'll remember that God struck Uzziah with leprosy because he tried to go and act like a priest in the house of the Lord. And so because of that, he got leprosy and was expelled from the house of the Lord. What was he doing? He was trying to worship God unbiblically. He wasn't obeying the Word of God. Uh, Then we find that King uh, Jotham came along and he did what what was considered to be mighty acts in the name of the Lord. He was a great warrior and he too, it said, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But there's a footnote in his description that says he did not enter the house of the Lord. He neglected it. And not only that, we find that by the time we get to Ahaz, uh, Ahaz uh, is even worse. We're told in Second Chronicles 28-25 that Jotham's son Ahaz actually shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and built altars to foreign gods on every hill. Do you see the progression? 
Uh, You have a king that sought to worship God unbiblically, and then his son actually neglected the worship of God, and then finally you get to King Ahaz, who is bolting up the doors of the house of God, worshiping idols, and we're told that he was so into this worship of pagan idols that he offered up his own sons as sacrifices to those gods. See, I think this is a, a really clear picture of how quickly From one generation to the next, we can go from being a people of God to being a people who are against God. I mean, just think about it. Grandpa tried to worship in a way that wasn't biblical. Dad avoided God's house, and one generation later, his son is bolting the door into the presence of Yahweh and looking to any and every God he can find. He is one of the most wicked kings that we read about, especially of Judah, even burning his own sons. Now, you might ask, how did Ahaz get to that point spiritually. Well, Second Chronicles 28.22 tells us, I believe, it gives us a picture into the psyche of, of, of Ahaz and what was going on with him spiritually. There it says, in the time of distress, Ahaz became yet more faithless to the Lord. Do you see it? When, when times got hard, he got less faithful. The harder things got, the more faithless he became. And that is the story of King Ahaz's life. But just think about it. It only took a generation to go from neglecting worship to burning children as child sacrifices. And not only that, did you catch the response of Ahaz to distress? Amidst the fires of significant troubles, his faith didn't shine, it faded. And the fear of man thrives as the fear of God dies. Don't miss that. The, the, The fear of man, it thrives as the fear of God dies. The bigger man becomes in your eyes, the smaller God will become. And when distress distilled the life of Ahaz, he proved absent of even a residue of faith in God. Well, this morning we're going to see that that downward spiral of his life and of the nation is epitomized in this climactic moment that we find in Isaiah 7. He is brought with a decision, a question, will you trust God or will you trust the nations? And here we find that he makes the wrong decision. So our big idea this morning is this. The fear of God leads to life and wars against the fear of man leading to death. The fear of God leads to life and wars against the fear of man which leads to death. I want to see this in a number of ways. But first, notice that Ahaz experiences the fear of man in verses 1 to 2. In verses 1 to 2, Ahaz experiences the fear of man. Now, our first two verses, they they really are just setting the agenda for our text this morning. You'll notice that there he mentions Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, also known as Ephraim. So you've got two kings, kings of Israel and Assyria, or Syria, not Assyria, but Syria with an S, pressured Ahaz to join forces against the great army of Assyria that was on the move. And when Ahaz refused to make that suicide pact against the superpower of Assyria with whom there was no hope to defeat, Israel and Syria turned against Ahaz and attacked Judah to the point that they besieged the city of Jerusalem. And that's why Isaiah says, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And Ahaz and his people faced a legitimate threat of danger. But not only that, King Ahaz 
represents the house of David. Important to note here, it, it reminds us of all of the promises that God made to King David, including that his seed would receive an eternal throne. That's a great promise. And yet here we find God also promised in Isaiah 6 that the holy seed, that is the stump, would survive. So he has these far-reaching promises that have come to David, his his great-great-grandfather. And then you also have this near promise that the seed will survive. And yet here what we find is, is it already looks like Ahaz will be wiped off the face of the planet along with the hope of the nations. Now don't miss this. Ahaz may be a king, but he suffers from a garden variety malady the Bible calls the fear of man. He suffers with the fear of man. See, our our fears, they can cause all kinds of different responses. So sometimes you might see that fear results in a a fight-flight kind of mechanism. Uh, but, But we also find in the Bible the fear of man can also cause someone to be controlled or for you to be in awe of someone else. So some of the people that that you fear are actually people who have control over you, and you might think of it as quite a nice thing, even though it's a thing that is very powerful over you in your life. Let me just ask you something this morning as we look at this text. Do you struggle with the fear of man? Is that something that that you struggle with this morning? And, and, And what about this? Do you think that you would even know if you did? Is it possible that you could struggle with the fear of man and not even know it? Well, many of you, maybe some of you, are literally feeling fear because someone is physically harming you. Uh, you know, let me just say as a pastor that we've had uh, women and children that have come to us who have needed to be protected, and, and we look to help them in any way that we can. We've helped uh, many in that way. So if that's you this morning, please let us know. We'd love to help you. Um, maybe that's you. You're struggling with fear of man. You need to get out of that danger. But maybe for many others of us, we're struggling not with that clear and present physical threat. We know that fear of man can also be much more subtle, don't we? It can work in ways that maybe we don't even perceive and the kind of control and authority that people might have over us. See, the, the, the fear of man the Bible speaks of is often more subtle than that apparent fear. Sometimes people who appear powerful are actually controlled by others. So there might be people that you think are completely in control, and yet if you knew their hearts, you would know that there's something else controlling them. We read about that in all kinds of places. In fact, I know people like this. I know a man who killed a lion with his bare hands, and he was taken down by a woman, right? You all know this guy? Samson, right? Like biblically, his fear of this woman conquered him in a way that no army ever could. I've seen single men and women controlled not by actual people, but by an ideal future spouse that has dictated the clothes they wear, it has prevented them from committing to a local church, and it has left them angry with God. I've seen kindergartners fight to give the best gift at a birthday party so their friends approve, even if it does cost $100. How many parents have you seen who don't struggle with the fear of man but the fear of children, right? They don't discipline their children because they want them to be their buddies or they want them to think well of them or they let their children even maybe choose their church. Isn't it bad if the child chooses the church? Isn't there something spiritually wrong there? I think so. 
I think the Bible says that. And some men and women will even sacrifice their families for success at work because they are controlled by what others think of their performance. Sometimes the fear of man is well well rewarded by the world. Have you noticed that? You can turn the fear of man into a really good salary. And just maybe this morning, either your hatred for someone or your desire for someone controls you. But please don't miss this. The fear of man is even more dangerous than it is common because the Bible contrasts the fear of man with the fear of God. That's why you see the fear of man often hanging out with his two best buddies. Do you know these guys? Unbelief, right, on one hand. And who's the other one? Disobedience. So anytime you see uh, this fear of man in the Bible, look out, be on the lookout for unbelief and disobedience because they're always together. Don't miss this. The way you view people says more about how you view God than you view man. How are you viewing God today? See, the fear of man always emerges out of unbelief that leads to disobedience. But in the same way, the fear of God or or a, a, a submissive reverence to him that leads to obedience always emanates from faith that leads to obedience. It always does. So the fear of man, it actually dwarfs God and makes him small before your eyes and in your soul. But the fear of God dwarfs man. So if you are fearing man, the thing that you actually need to focus on is how you are fearing God. If you do that, that will bring you confidence in this life. Confidence not in yourself, but in your great God. And he does this twice. You'll notice that uh, this is what Ahaz needs as he struggles with fear of man. What he needs most is to hear God's Word. And if that's you today, and you're struggling with some kind of control that someone has over you, that they are actually dictating your life in a way that is not healthy, what you need to do is what Ahaz needs to do, which is to hear from God. And Ahaz hears from God twice in verses 3 to 9 and verses 10 to 25. So we'll look at the first one. Uh, Notice, second, that faith in God's Word combats the fear of man. Faith in God's Word combats the fear of man in verses 3 to 9. So look there with me in your copy of God's Word. And listen to what he says here to Ahaz. Beginning in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Now just think about this. Isaiah is going to meet King Ahaz with a word from the Lord, and he takes Shir Jashub, his son, with him, And his name is interesting. This son's name actually means a remnant shall return. So this kid doesn't ever actually speak. He just kind of rides along. And when he gets there, his very physical presence is kind of the message. And what he represents is basically that he is sort of this um, living, breathing greeting card that says you will either find God's salvation or judgment. And he commands Ahaz to do four things. Isaiah says, do these four things. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And he's saying this about Israel and Syria who are threatening to destroy them. 
Now, 2 Kings 16 tells us that King Ahaz's advisors in this moment had been telling him to move quickly to make an alliance with Assyria to save them. So he's saying, look, you're in danger. You need to sort of lock up with Assyria and they'll help you. They'll save us. We need, some, we need to make a wise political move to secure our salvation. And that's why Alec Moitier explains what these first two commands means. He says that God is really saying, be careful to do nothing. Be careful to do nothing. Now, th- this isn't an Old Testament ancient version of let go and let God. That's not what he's saying. That's not good theology. What he's saying here is, I want you not to try to devise a plan to save yourself. I want you to watch how I am going to follow through with my word and save you. Here, God is asking for active obedience from Ahaz to trust God's promises more than he fears the taunts of men. Did you notice that God calls Israel and Syria two smoldering stumps of firebrands? It's because Assyria would soon stamp them out. Now presently they taunt Ahaz, the son of David, in verse 5, and they're threatening to replace him with the son of Tabeel. Now, who's Tabeel? Anybody know who Tabeel is? Nobody knows who Tabeel is. Here's the deal. Nobody cares who Tabeel is, right? The point is, Tabeel is not David. David has the promises of God. Tabeel doesn't. Tabeel has not been promised an eternal throne that will last forever. And he's sitting there reminding him, do not forget the promises of God and who you are. I am the God who in 2 Samuel 7 promised your great-great-grandfather David that I would produce a seed from him with an eternal throne. So what's at play here as they are facing the threats of men is not just a threat against him and his nation, the small nation of Judah, but instead he's saying what's at, what's at play here is whether or not Ahaz will trust the promises of God. Will God follow through with His Word? And in verses 7 to 9, God doubles down. He says, catch this. This is what's going to happen. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resident. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Don't miss this. Here in this text, God says it will not stand. But what is it that's not going to stand? God's promising that both their enemies and their threats will fall together. God is, is trying to communicate to Ahaz and his people that... These people that are making these threats cannot follow through with what's going on. Their mouths are writing checks that their armies can't cash. There is no way that they are going to be able to come through on the threats because of who their God is. So He's drawing them towards faith in them. Their evil plans, like their threats, are empty. And not only that, God, did you notice He says that Syria will fall and Israel will no longer be a political people in 65 years? Now, if this is 734 B.C., 13 years later, Assyria would come in in 721 and take the people and exile them out of the land. They would devastate them. And then we're told that 65 years later, uh, we would have a a man, Esheradon, who would come and give their land over to foreigners who would move in so that Israel would no longer have land to return to. They would cease to be a political people. 
A fulfillment of what God has said because God always keeps His Word. Now don't miss this. Don't miss how God immediately turns and warns Ahaz in verse 9. He warns him. This is a warning for Ahaz. He says to him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, fail to trust God's promises here, and a final hardening of your heart will follow. So what looks like a political issue is actually an issue of faith. And brothers and sisters, please hear me. There are so many issues that you have that are relational, that are vocational, that are theological, that are actually more issues of faith than you realize. You need to make sure that you're constantly aware that God, God and who He is and how you view Him affects the way that you view everything and the way that you live your life. Here, Ahaz didn't realize that his politics had anything to do with who his God was. And God's people have always been defined not by the amount of faith that they had, but the reality and object of their faith. And by faith, we are the people of God. No faith means that we are no people. And everything hinges on your faith as evidenced by your obedience. We, like Ahaz, I believe will be regularly confronted with the choice of whether or not to trust God to be our shield or to go God shopping looking for doctors who will not only heal but outwit God for unhealthy relationships that make us feel good about ourselves even when we are bad and safe even when we're in danger. You know what I'm saying? We, we start looking for all of these other things outside of God, not trusting Him, not obeying Him and the relationships that we have and with our lives. We will not share the gospel because we are concerned about losing friends or family or even people that we don't miss that much. Like people that we don't even really care that much about. They, they control us in the way they think about us and we won't share Christ with them because we fear man. Many rejected Jesus Himself as He preached to them. And they even believed, we're told, in the book of Matthew chapter 10. And yet they would not put their faith in Him. Why? Because they were scared about what others might think. Yeah, peer pressure existed even in the Bible. Peer pressure kept people from Jesus. And that's why in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus warns those same people who were allowing peer pressure to keep them from Christ, saying, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I believe that Proverbs 29, 21 could be speaking of Ahaz here. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This morning, is there some way that you are fearing man and you are laying a snare for yourself and you don't even know it? Are you expecting things from people, needing things from people, hoping things from people that really ultimately you should be trusting God for and God alone? I think there's another thing that we find in this quote, though, that's really helpful. As a church, as a body, we ought to notice that here, when he says, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not stand firm, or you will not be firm at all, is actually in the plural. He's speaking to a community of faith. He's speaking to the people of God. In other words, faith has been, is, and always will be a community project. We are called to have individual faith, but God also calls us to be a community of faith to help one another believe to the end. So 1 Timothy 3, Paul calls the local church the pillar and buttress of truth. That's God's Word that we put our trust in. 
We are a community of faith gathered around God's Word, trusting God. Why are we a pillar and buttress of truth? Well, pillars hold things up and buttresses hold things out. And so we need one another to be able to do that, to hold out lies and to hold forth truth and to hold up truth to the glory of God. We do that together in a way that we as individuals cannot do it to the glory of God. Don't miss this. You need a local church to help you fight the fear of man with the fear of God. You can't bear that burden alone. You, you need other brothers and sisters who are willing to come alongside you and point you towards God and towards salvation that is only to be found in Jesus Christ. God becomes bigger in community and man becomes smaller. You need elders to teach and care for you. We need a body that exercises gifts and sacrificial love with one another. And all of this works to humble man and glorify God. As Ed Welch says, we need people less. We need to need people less and love people more. That's what the the fear of God calls us to. The fear of God drives us to sacrificial love for others. The fear of God drives us to love God and others more, not less. The fear of man leads to sacrificing others, even their children. But the fear of God leads to sacrificial love and eternal life. Uh, we see that in our third point. Uh, notice that testing God by fearing man, men most ends in death, exile, and worse. Testing God by fearing men most leads to death, it leads to exile, and worse in verses 10 to 18. Look again with me in your copy of God's Word in, in Isaiah uh, chapter, chapter 7 at what Isaiah says. You'll notice, and I think Ahaz knows that he's in trouble here as God comes to approach him again. Because he knows that the first time God approached him, it doesn't seem like it took. And so this probably isn't good when God has to come back and speak to you again when you've disobeyed. And so here in verses 10 to 18, here's what he says. Uh, we'll start off by just reading the first few verses. He says, beginning in uh, 7 verse 10, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now here we see Ahaz test God. Now now God, please hear me, he's not a genie in a bottle. He's not the kind of God that you just come and you say like, I need a sign. If you show a sign, I'll believe. If you don't, I won't. That's not what I think is being advocated here. What is being described is a really unique situation between God and Ahaz, the king of Judah, who is on the brink of destruction. And here what we find is, is that God offers Ahaz the unparalleled, amazing opportunity to ask him for a sign, anything from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. This is an incredible ask of the Lord, an offer that He would give him a sign. Now think about this. Sheol is a word that we find used multiple times in the book of Isaiah. It always means a place that is deep, but it also means always, and I've read it in Isaiah, the place of death. So think about this for a minute. The, the, The offer that's being made here, we might be missing the depths of what he's saying. He's saying that I will give you anything from the depths of Sheol where the dead are to the heights of heaven. It almost seems as though he's saying one of those children that you sacrifice to your gods, 
I will bring them back to you as a picture of the fact that they are a God of death, but I am more powerful as the God of life. I will bring life back to you. Maybe, I might be missing that. You can ask Dan in Sunday school. But here we find that he has offered an incredible offer to Ahaz. Ahaz, maybe as you read this, he sounds pretty spiritual for not asking for a flea sign like Gideon did twice and just taking God at his word. But verse 12 tips us off that that Ahaz actually is demonstrating a false kind of piety when he says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Interesting word, Ahaz. Interesting word. See, the test is interesting given this context. A word that's used other word places in the Old Testament like Exodus 17. You'll remember there that the people of God are in the desert and they're thirsty to the point of death. And they're ready to kill Moses when all of a sudden they say, if you don't give us water, uh, then we're going to kill you and we're going to run back to Egypt. And it's at that point that they begin to ask this question, is the Lord amongst us or not? You catch that? He just rescued them out of Egypt. They didn't lift a sword. They left the most powerful nation in the world at that time, were rescued by God, for God, and they are sitting there thirsty, wondering if God is really going to show up and is for them. They question God. And God had Moses strike the rock of the mountain producing water and called that place Massah or Meribah, meaning the place where God's people tested God. Here's what's interesting. Psalm 81 speaks of that event and says God tested his people at Massah. And and chapter 95 of Psalms said God's people tested him. So who was doing the testing? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? No. No. It's clear. What he's saying is, is they thought they were testing me, but I was testing them. I was showing that their faith, it was not solid, it was not firm. It was a falling kind of faith. So both here and in Exodus 17, God is showing that both are true. God tested Ahaz's offering, tested Ahaz offering him a sign to see if he would obey God's word and ask for one. And Ahaz tested God by refusing to trust and obey him when the water dried up and he feared death. Catch this. Ahaz passed and God always, I mean, Ahaz failed and God always passes the test. God is always true to his word. He never wavers. But here Ahaz, Ahaz fails to trust God. But notice this. In verse 14, we see that God gives Ahaz a sign. He says, you, you, don't, you don't want to ask for a sign? Well, let me give you a sign. And notice the sign that he gives in verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know that God with us here is actually bad, right? It's bad because Ahaz has wearied God with his fear of man, unbelief, and disobedience. So some as they look at this text, they debate the use of the word virgin here because the Hebrew word Alma actually means a young woman who is normally but not always a virgin. They say if he really wanted to speak of a virgin, he would have used betula, which is a word that always means virgin, and that would have gotten the point across clearly. Well, I think actually this word is perfect because I think that it communicates this word that's used here both a near and a far fulfillment with a word that fits both. See, I believe that that God actually fulfills this promise of giving this special child Emmanuel both in a near and a far fulfillment. There's a double fulfillment here. 
And so here's how I see this. First, in verses 15 to 25, they tip us off that this son who would be given would arrive in Isaiah's lifetime. So just look. Look at verses 15 to 17. Look at verses 15 to 17 at what he says. He says, He, the son, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be, des- will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now just think about this. By the time this kid is 13, uh, likely an age when he would have been expected to understand good and evil, uh, they are going to find that the men Ahaz fear so much, those monsters that seem so great, Pekah and Rezin, will be gone and replaced by, catch this, an even greater terror, Assyria. <laughs> so you think you're scared now. There are worse things to be scared of that aren't even on your radar. Thanks, God. Now, you can't miss the irony. The human protector that he sought becomes his executioner. Do you see it? He sought life in another than God, and it led to his death. In other words, if Ahaz had trusted God, he would have received a sign of salvation. But because he feared man more than God, his heart was hardened, and he received a sign of judgment instead. Now, verses 18 to 25 tell us a little more about that day that this child will come. You'll notice as you look through, if you scan through, that he gives four in that day statements. Here's what that day is going to be like, all right? And they all describe that judgment. You'll notice that Egypt was known for flies and Assyria for bees. And in verses 18 to 19, in that day, they will swarm the land. Uh, Then verse 20 moves from land to people, with with God hiring a barber in that day, who will shave the head of the hair, the foot, and the beard, all with the same razor. I think that's okay. Still trying to process the foot hair. But you've heard someone say before, I'm sure, threatening that if you touch the hair of his head, you will, you know, my wrath will know no, no limits. That kind of thing, right? Well, here the idea is, is that every, head, every hair from head to toe will be absolutely dealt with by the justice of God. There will be no escape. Uh, God says uh, not only that, that he will eat curds and honey, which point to utter poverty. That's a diet of poverty in verses 21 to 22. And finally, in verses 23 to 25, God's rich vineyard in Judah will be overcome in that day with briars and thorns. You remember briars and thorns throughout, sign of God's curse going back to Genesis 3? Well, here they come again, pointing to God's curse on the land for Ahaz and his people's sins against God, not trusting him for salvation from their enemies. So what, who is this son? Well, I believe the near fulfillment is actually Isaiah's son, who's born in Isaiah 8, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, you'll notice if you look in chapter 8, he is born. He's born to Isaiah, I think a fulfillment of the sign. And his name means swift to the spoil. Swift to the spoil. In other words, this son is promising that God is going to be with us. He's promising that presence of God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. And yet here it is not going to be good for them. Because God with us means that God will draw near to Judah for fearing more men more than God. And He will draw near to them in justice and righteousness until only a stump would remain. 
See, that, that's what the sun signals. God with us carries a, a different ring here, doesn't it, than what we're going to sing about in a few months. See, here, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, is actually quite different than what we typically sing, because here you'll notice that God will draw near to Judah in judgment. So this Emmanuel was a terrifying little bundle of fear that Ahaz had. But he also pointed, I believe, not just to that child, but he also pointed to another child, the far fulfillment, who would be born over 700 years later, to a woman who was not only young and unmarried, but also an actual virgin, whom the Holy Spirit would overshadow, creating the God-man named Jesus, meaning Savior. And that Jesus would be the Savior of the people of God. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He was a good king, not like Ahaz. And he was not controlled by the fear of man, but by God's Spirit. And he died on the cross to save us from the greater than mortal enemies of sin, death, and the devil. And this Emmanuel, he was raised from Sheol, literally, as a sign that God had reconciled man to God and draw them near to him. In fact, Matthew 1.21 speaks of him, saying that Jesus had another name too, which means Yahweh saves. Matthew says, all this took place with Jesus to fulfill that the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, God, which means God with us. And you see what this means? Every one of us has an Ahaz-like moment that has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. He is a fresh word that has come to us from God. God's ultimate expression of himself to you and me. And we, like Ahaz, have this moment where when we come before Jesus, we have to decide whether or not we're going to believe God, trust Him, take Him at His Word, who is Jesus Christ, our Savior, or we're going to walk away and have our hearts hardened. That's what we find when we come to Christ. He is the better Word that has come from God than what Ahaz had. We have Christ Himself, Emmanuel. Emmanuel who right now, if you turn and repent and believe in Him, it actually means God saves rather than God judges. What a glorious promise that we have in Christ. Don't leave here today, friend, if you're a non-Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. A day of judgment's coming, and the only hope that you have is to be found in Christ. I would love to talk to you about this after the service. We have many people who would love to talk to you about Jesus. There's nothing that you need more than Christ. I'm I'm telling you, today you are controlled by something. Someone controls you, and there's no one who is good and loving and trustworthy like Christ to trust with your life. Only He can promise you life after death. But here what we find is, is that if we reject Him, we will face the just judgment of God for our sins. And how we respond to Christ, it means everything. So if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you're wondering, well, what does it look like to put my faith in Jesus? Let me just give you a picture from Charles Spurgeon that I find very helpful. Real faith, true faith, faith that will stand firm and that won't fall like what Ahaz was, was guilty of is a faith that actually is focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You believe that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ died on a cross for sinners, that you have a problem with God that only Jesus has been able to fix through His death and through His life, and that He was raised from the dead to tell you, to promise you, to assure you as a sign of the reality that you can have good relationship with God, that you can be reconciled with Him. But not only that, not only do you need to believe that gospel truth about Jesus, Second, you also need to believe that it's not just generally true that Jesus did that in history, but that he did it for you. That you specifically are a sinner. That Christ died for you on the cross, and that by putting your faith in him, you will be forgiven 
of your sins, that you will become no longer an enemy of God, but a child of God. A God who is no longer against you, but is for you, such that nothing can separate you from love, from his love. And there's a third thing. A third thing I think is really important that a lot of people miss is this, that true, true faith includes this thing, recumbency. It's what Puritans called recumbency. Now, I know that's a big word, a weird word, but I bet you're more familiar with it than you know. Uh, if you've watched a football game in a lazy boy chair, then you know what I'm talking about. Uh, a lazy boy is also called a recumbent chair. Uh, a recumbent chair is just one that you sort of ease back into, you lean into. Now, when you lean into that chair, you are trusting that chair to hold you, aren't you? You're leaning into it. You're trusting that it's going to catch you. Well, true faith is a faith that leans into God with our lives, with the decisions that we make, with the choices that we make, with how we live, with the ways that we live in community with others. Those are all shaped by the fact that we are trusting God in obedience, that He is as good as He says He is, and that obedience and holiness are good for us because He says so. So if you are, are truly putting your faith in God, it means that you believe that what He said is true, that what he has said is true for you, and you're willing to put your life on it. That's what Christ is calling you today. If you haven't done that, don't leave without talking to me about how to make that a reality for you. But brothers and sisters, let's go to the Lord in prayer, praising him as our Savior. We pray with me?